what seems impossible in your life? And what I would ask you, if there's something you're hoping for, longing for, wishing for, that just seems impossible, you might be thinking about some enormous sum of money or some uh, job that hasn't opened up or uh, something like that. Or if I pressed you a little deeply, if I pressed you to think a little more substantively, perhaps you would think about things that in your life you, you really wish could happen, but they, they seem impossible, like, that, uh, like freedom, freedom from bondage or freedom from an addiction. Maybe it's to overcome that which happened in your past, to forgive somebody that harmed you. Maybe it's that relationship that needs to be healed or restored. Maybe it's to overcome that black hole that you seem to feel like you're in, a dark place emotionally. Could you break through and feel free? What is it that you long for that just seems impossible? But impossible things don't happen, right? I mean, that's the definition of the word. It's not possible. The possible, the impossible isn't possible. Or is it? The Christmas season is about believing that impossible things can happen. The Christmas season is the belief that impossible things have happened and that they can happen. Because Christmas is the belief in a time when an unseen world kind of pulled back the curtain and entered our world where an invisible God became visible, where an untouchable, unknowable God all of a sudden became someone that you could touch and someone that you could hear and someone that you could be with. Christmas is about the belief that the impossible isn't impossible, but that with God, all things were possible. And if that was true then, it's still true now, which is why this is such a powerful story. If you have your Bible, we're turning to the Gospel of Luke. We're turning to chapter 1 in that Gospel of Luke. And we're going to do something over the next couple of weeks here at Calvary. We're going to look at these familiar Christmas narratives as we look at the signs of hope. The signs of hope that, that another world is speaking into our world from another place to give us hope no matter what our situation may be. And in Luke chapter 1, we read one of those familiar narratives. In Luke chapter 1, Luke begins his gospel account, his biography of Jesus, by actually talking about Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. And though she was too old to bear children, God allowed her and her husband to conceive, and she was now six months pregnant. Well, in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel then appeared to Mary. And we pick up the story in the gospel of Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And believing as we do that these are the words of God out of reverence for God's Word, let's stand together as we read Luke 1, (coughs) beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for whom? For her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left. Fathers, we read these words about the impossible becoming possible. Lord, we know it on one level. We hear it, and yet sometimes it's hard to believe that impossible things can become possible in our life. Show us what we need to know about you, and show us, like Mary, what we need to do to be totally surrendered to you, that we might see, even at Christmas, maybe especially at Christmas, the impossible become possible, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mary is a young girl. She's a teenager. It's hard to know exactly how old she is, but just a teenager, and as would be the custom of that time, she is already engaged to be married. Engagement is a little different in those days than ours. It was more legally binding. It was more of a strong formality. It was a legal contract she had already entered into, and she was in that period of time between her betrothal or engagement and the actual marriage. When, according to Luke's account, an angel appeared to her. Now, we who believe in Christmas believe that this is true. I understand, by the way, why some of you perhaps would find it hard to believe it's true. You might find it a wonderful story and an interesting tale, but do I really believe it's true? Those of us who believe it is true know that Christmas is the belief that the impossible becomes possible. It is the belief that God himself has spoken and that God himself has come. It is the good news that God is love and that he has come to save us. And if it is true, then nothing that is impossible is really impossible with God. All things are possible. I want to just think about that for a moment. And and I want to give you, first of all, why we believe that the impossible is not really impossible And then secondly, what is it we need to do in order to experience God's work in our life? Is there something we can learn about how we get ourselves in a position to experience God's extraordinary grace? Well, first of all, I want to just think about the logical, you know, possibility, if you will, of impossible things happen. It seems to be a self-contradicting belief. But I wanted you to know something that I think is absolutely rational, The impossible becomes possible when God exists. 
The impossible becomes possible when God exists. I've told the story before about a young man who came home from the university where he had had his Christian faith thoroughly deconstructed. Been taught to him that it was nothing more than myths and tales, and he came home now smarter than his ignorant father who had not enjoyed such a vast education. They got into an argument of sorts, and the young man now explained why he didn't believe the Bible was really true. And the father, not being educated in all the various theories that his son had now been exposed to, finally simply said, Son, I don't know about all that, but here's what I know. You know, his son had said, How can you believe a whale swallowed a man and so forth? And and the, the old man said, son, I don't, I don't understand all that, but I know this. If God can make a whale and God, and then he stopped, he said, dad, you can't do that. You can't insert God into the equation. Well, if it's all right with you, I'd like to insert God into the equation. Because when you insert God into the equation, everything changes. If you believe that God exists, if you believe even that God potentially exists, then it logically changes the equation. You don't have to deny natural laws to believe that a higher power could insert himself into those laws, and suddenly things change. If I were to tell you that apples fall from trees, you would know, of course, it's true, even if you hadn't seen it. You know that an apple, when it gets ripe, falls, is going to hit the ground. It's the law of gravity. They don't stop in midair. But if you're standing underneath the tree, reach out your hand and catch it, then all of a sudden an apple stops in midair, doesn't it? It's not because the law of gravity isn't real or it requires any suspense in scientific belief. All it requires is a belief that somebody can insert themselves into the story and do that which would otherwise not be done. If you believe that God exists, as I said, even if you believe that God potentially exists, then you have to believe in the potentiality that the impossible might become possible. To put it another way, just for fun, the possibility of impossibility becomes impossible when I conclude the possibility of God. (laughs) For those of you taking notes, maybe just one more time. (laughs) The possibility of impossibility becomes impossible when I conclude the possibility of God. And if I conclude the probability of God then the possibility of impossibility becomes improbable or becomes almost probable. The impossible can be done. And if I conclude the certainty of God, then I believe it is certain that impossible things can be done. And none of this requires me to check my brain at the door. None of this requires me to not have valid discernment or believe that the principles of science are valid and demonstrable. It's just that I believe if God exists, then there are times and places where the impossible becomes possible. As verse 37 says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Perhaps Tim Keller, the pastor, author, and scholar, says it better than I could in his New York Times interview last Christmas season. Two days before Christmas, the New York Times did a nice interview, kind of a Christmas interest interview. And the author, who was thoroughly respectful of Keller as a leading evangelical, asked the question, he said, Dr. Keller, can I be considered part of the Christian community even if I have trouble believing in the virgin birth? 
I have trouble believing in the actual resurrection, those miracles that require kind of a suspense of rational thought. I admire the morals. I admire the example. I admire the good works many Christians do. Am I considered outside the community if I do not believe in the virgin birth, for instance, or the bodily resurrection? And Dr. Keller thoughtfully responded, and they printed his response. He said, quote, I don't see why faith should be seen as inconsistent with science. There's nothing illogical about miracles if a creator God exists. Keller continued, if a God exists who is big enough to create the universe in all its complexity and vastness, why should a mere miracle be such a mental stretch? To prove that miracles could not happen, you would have to know beyond a doubt that God does not exist, but that is not something anyone can prove. Keller continued, science must always assume that an effect has a repeatable and natural cause. That is its methodology. So for the sake of argument, if a miracle occurred, science would have no way to confirm a non-repeatable supernatural cause. Alvin Platenga argued it to say there must, to say, to say that there must be a scientific cause for any apparently miraculous phenomena is like insisting that your lost keys must be under the street light because that's the only place you can see. The reality is no matter how smart you may think you are and no matter how proud of your body of knowledge you may be, most would concede that outside the light you can see, there are still realities you cannot see. To conclude there is no God is to conclude that outside of what you know, there isn't even the possibility that God is there. Which is why most people who aren't even sure if the Christmas story is true will still conclude it's at least possible that God is there. Well, I think he is there. And I think Christmas is the story about how the God who is there became the God who is here. How the impossible becomes possible. Now, whether you're convinced of that or not, I want to look at the story, and I want to show you just maybe looking at the example of Mary, what Mary did so that the impossible could become possible in her life. On one sense, of course, she did nothing. It was God's work. And yet, how did she respond to what God revealed to her? How did she respond to what God was doing in her life? Here she is, a young girl, engaged to be married, living in a small town, And an angel appears to her. And the angel tells her she will become pregnant and have a child. Now, Mary is young, but she knows how babies are made. She knows that it takes a man and a woman, the act of sexual intercourse, for a woman to become pregnant and to bear a child. And Mary explicitly says here, I have not had sexual relations with a man. She is a virgin. The virgin birth is taught in both the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke. It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, some would say it was not prophesied as explicitly as it was fulfilled in Matthew and Luke. And there's a degree of truth in that. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 was to a specific time 
about how a virgin girl would marry and give birth to a child. That simply means a girl who is a maritable age, who is now a virgin, will have the time to get married, then get pregnant, and have a child. And so that meant something in Isaiah's day. But it's Matthew who looks back on that prophecy and says, as God so often does when he gives prophecy in the Old Testament, God was saying two things at the same time. And Matthew and Luke's gospel make absolutely clear We're not just talking about a virgin who gets married and then has a child. We're talking about a virgin who has no sexual relationship becoming pregnant before she ever gets married. And that's what happens to this young girl. Now, even if you find that hard to believe, I want you to imagine what it must have been like for her. I want you to imagine how literally it turns her life upside down. But how does she respond to God's revelation? And looking at how she responds is absolutely critical in in getting to a place where impossible things can become possible in your life. I want to give you three things that I believe Mary did that I believe you can do. Number one, you can accept God's grace. You can accept God's grace. God's grace means favor. It's unearned love. It's a gracious, kind, generous disposition toward us that has not been earned or deserved. Now, I want you to look at how the angel responds to Mary. Your Bible is open, and you see that when the angel first speaks to Mary, in verse 28, he says, greetings. Then what does he say? Greetings, favored woman. Some say that full of grace because the word favor here can be translated grace. A woman who has received grace. A woman who has been graced, if you will, by God. God's favor is upon her. God's favorable disposition is towards her. God's gracious intent is leaning toward her. You are a woman who is favored of God. Then you read down. He says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. Mary was obviously afraid. She was obviously frightened when an angel began to talk to her. And the word do not be afraid is the most common command in the Bible, by the way. And the most common response of anyone who encounters God is fear. So the angel says, do not be afraid. Look at what the angel says next. Is your Bible open? Verse 30. For you have found what? Favor. Favor with God. In both of those cases, the angel speaks about the favor that is upon Mary or the grace that is upon Mary. Now, sometimes here we get confused because when we look at the fact that Mary is highly favored, Mary is full of favor, we might look at it in this way. Does that mean Mary is full of grace that Mary is full of innate goodness? Or does it mean that God's goodness and God's favor and God's grace are now poured out upon Mary? This is very important. Is it Mary that is full of grace? Or is it God full of grace bestowing his grace, his favor on Mary? Now, I know there are many different doctrines and traditions in Christianity. And one of those 
key different points that we would have with our Catholic friends. And this is not, you know, I'm not, please, I'm not taking a shot. This is not like, let's throw elbows at somebody. Because we have dozens of people, maybe, I don't know, hundreds of people in our church that watch online or come that have either a Catholic background or from my wife grew up in a Catholic family. Our Catholic friends have several doctrines about Mary that you may be aware of, and sometimes it confuses the conversation. For instance, there is the doctrine of immaculate conception. Do you know what the doctrine of immaculate conception is teaching? It is the belief that not only was Mary a virgin who gave birth to Jesus, but that Mary herself was sinless, that she was preserved in her conception from original sin. She bore no sin, therefore she could bear a child who had no sin. Of course, there's nowhere in Scripture that teaches that. In fact, we find Mary in this very chapter calling God her Savior, which implies she needs saving. The Bible clearly says that everyone has sinned and that Christ alone is without sin. But the doctrine of immaculate conception would teach us that Mary had no sin. Perpetual virginity is another key official doctrine of our Catholic friends. Perpetual virginity is the belief that Mary was not only a virgin when she bore Jesus, but that she remained a virgin all of her life. Even though the Bible tells us in Matthew 13, 54 and 56 that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. There's the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary. You know what this doctrine is? The doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary is the belief that at the end of Mary's life, she did not die, but she was taken into heaven, body and soul. Now, what is important to understand about all these other doctrines is they don't come from Scripture. They weren't taught by Jesus or the apostles of Jesus. They come out of tradition. They developed over hundreds of years after the time of the Bible was written. But the problem that I have with those doctrines is I think it causes us to miss the biggest miracle here. When God comes to Mary and says, Mary, you are highly favored. You have found favor with God. It is not a statement about the goodness of Mary. It is a statement about the goodness of God. Now, I don't think there's any question that Mary is a faithful, devout, and God fearing person. She absolutely is. There's no evidence to suggest the contrary. But here's the question. Are you sitting here in this Christmas season thinking, if only I was as good as Mary, if only I was perfect, if only I hadn't done that, if only I hadn't messed up when I was in college, if I only hadn't made that decision, if my family hadn't experienced this, if only, if only, if only, then maybe the impossible could become possible in my life. And friend, if that is the way you're thinking, you are missing the message of Christmas. The message and the miracle of Jesus coming to Mary is that she is the unlikeliest of candidates to bear the Son of God. She is a humble peasant girl from nowhere with no notoriety in the world. And yet God chose to place his son in her. The reason that God put Jesus in Mary is because God wants to put Jesus in you. And what makes this a miraculous story is that if God could look at Mary and say, 
You have found favor. I am placing my favor upon you and I will place my son in you. It allows me to stand before you today and say that God says the same thing to you. He wants to bestow his grace upon you. He offers his grace to you. And he wants to place his son in your life, in your heart. It isn't about being perfect because that horse has already left the barn. It's about knowing a God who loves you and is graciously disposed to you and has come in Mary so that that gift might be received to you. Impossible things happen when you understand the impossible things aren't dependent on you. They're dependent upon God. It's with God that all things are possible. It didn't say, if hard work, all things are possible. With a lot of things possible with hard work, a whole lot of things. I'm for it, by the way. But not all things are possible. You can accomplish a lot, but not all things are possible. All things are, it doesn't say all things are possible by, by, you know, all kinds. It says all things are possible with God. It begins with him. And having the impossible become possible in your life begins by saying, God, I receive your grace in Christ. Number two, it's believing in God's power. Because if, if Mary's first question, it's unstated, but I think it's there, is who me? The second question is how me? <laughs> because again, you don't have to be a scientist to know virgins don't get pregnant. That's a story nobody's buying because it doesn't happen. It's a medical impossibility. But God came to do the impossible in Mary. In Jeremiah 32, verse 17, the prophet says, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. It's the Old Testament way of what the angel was saying. Nothing is impossible for God. So let me ask you something. What's too difficult to happen in your life? What barriers are you facing right now? What burdens are you carrying? And it's just too difficult. It's just too difficult. You may even think it's impossible. But is it too difficult for God? With God, all things will be possible. And Mary believed this. When the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit... By the way, the angel didn't give her a lesson in XY chromosomes. The angel didn't say, well, let me tell you how we're going to cook this up. No. You know what the angel said? The Holy Spirit of God will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You insert God into any equation, and the equation changes. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy One to be born, verse 35 says, will be called the Son of God. The virgin birth is very important, by the way. It demonstrates that Jesus was no ordinary man. Kevin DeYoung wrote this, if Jesus had not been born of a human, we could not believe in his full humanity. But if his birth were like any other human birth, 
through the union of a human father and mother, we would question his full divinity. The virgin birth, he writes, is necessary to secure both a real human nature and also a completely divine nature. The virgin birth is a demonstration of God's power. Is it impossible? Yes, until you insert God into the equation. But let me tell you something. The virgin birth isn't the greatest miracle at Christmas. The greatest miracle at Christmas is who is being born. Because he says to her, the one born to you will be called the son of God. The real demonstration of God's power is not the virgin birth, but the incarnation of God's son. The incarnation that God would become man is is unlike any other in all of history. It's not a matter, our faith is not a matter of so many moral stories about do unto others. Those can be found in any ethical standard and in any religious teaching. Our message in this Christmas season is that the Word of God, the essence of God, the being of God, the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the great miracle of this Christmas season. Jesus comes not to be another religious leader, not to be another great example. He does not come, and you've heard me say this many times, to point the way to salvation. Jesus comes and says, I am the way. It's not like, let me show you how to do it. Jesus says, I'm the one who did it for you. And the message of Christmas is that God has come in Jesus Christ in order to save us. Tim Keller, I quote him again, said the average secular person says that doctrines like the virgin birth and the incarnation don't really matter. All that matters, some would say, is that Jesus taught us to love our neighbor. We follow his teaching. But to say that is to say, I'm not really so bad that I need someone to come and be good for me. To say that is to say, I can be good I'm not so cut off from God, and God is not so holy that there has to be punishment for sin. But the gospel is the truth that, no, you are bad. You have sinned. We are separated from God. Perfection is a standard we could not obtain. And the gospel, the Christmas message, is that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we should have died so that we can believe in him and live a life of grateful joy. I accept God's grace. And I believe God's power. I just believe that God has done this in Jesus Christ. I believe that God can do anything. And then finally, she surrendered to God's plan. I love verse 38, where at the very end of it, after she hears this story, without, with God, nothing shall be impossible. She says, God, be it unto me according to your word. I love the New Living Translation where she says, I am the Lord's servant. I am willing to accept whatever he wants. Mary had no way of knowing what would happen. That the trajectory of her life and indeed the world would forever change. You don't know what God's going to do. But Mary knew this. I'll surrender to the Lord. God, whatever you want to do, 
I let you, I just surrender to you. Listen, impossible things don't happen in your life until you surrender to God. Most of us come to God like this. We're hanging on to what we have. Once in a while, we might let go of something. Once in a while, we're like, God wants to give us something. And we're, we're. And Mary came to God like this. She opened her hands. God, whatever you want to take from me, take. And whatever you want to put into my hands, you put into my hands. God, whatever you want to do, I surrender to you. Impossible things don't become possible till you get to a place of complete surrender to God because those things aren't dependent on your power, your goodness, your greatness. They're dependent upon God. So let me ask you something. Have you ever come to that place where you opened your hands and said, God, I surrender? Impossible things become possible when we accept God's grace, when we believe in God's power, and we surrender to God's plan. What seems impossible to you today? I want to ask you to remember the Christmas story and think this. If God could do that, is what I'm looking at too hard for God? Indeed, with God, nothing shall be impossible. I want you to pray with me right now. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I'm wondering if you're here this morning and maybe you've never, there's never been a time in your life where you've prayed and trusted Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Come into your life. Are you willing to accept God's grace? Believe, trust his power, and surrender to his plan? Your prayer might sound like this. It might be a simple prayer. It might be this. Lord God, I believe in you. And I acknowledge my sin. And I ask you today to forgive me of my sin. To come to live within my heart. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I believe you did come. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a sinless life and died in my place on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. As best I know how, I trust you today. I ask you to forgive me. This morning, uh, in a moment, we'll stand, we'll sing a final song of worship. We'll sing together. When that song is over, there'll be pastors here at the altar at this, right in here in the front of this platform. And as others leave, you, we invite you to come. Find a pastor and tell a pastor that today you want to trust Christ, today you've made that decision, or maybe you just have questions. We know what you're trying to ask. We'll, have, we'll pray with you, help people, help you take the next step in your spiritual life. So today, if you want to come and pray, we invite you to come. Before we sing, Christian, what seems too difficult, too impossible to even believe? I'm not asking you to believe in the unbelievable. I'm asking you to believe in the one who is imminently believable. The one who came long ago. And as Paul wrote in another place, if he would do that for us, would he not give us whatever we need to be in his plan, to fulfill his will for our life? You can trust him. You can trust him. And maybe even right now, you need to pray and cry out, your prayer might be this, Lord God, 
I believe that with you, the impossible is possible. And Father, like Mary, I accept your grace in Christ. I trust your power. I surrender to your plan. God, take anything out of my life you need to take. Put into my life whatever you need to put into it. I surrender to your plan to accomplish what you want in my life. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this song together as a praise to the Lord. Christ, my highest and adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of Trust y'all will have a wonderful week. We look forward to worshiping you with you again on Sunday.